Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. Amen. We're, we're jumping back into the book of Philippians, and I really and truly believe, you know, when we pray things like that, we're not just praying arbitrary words, but I truly believe that God is going to speak to you today, that it's not going to be an impersonal interaction with his word, but that his spirit will actually come to your heart. Thank you, dear. That his spirit will come into your heart and reveal his word to you in a very personal way. You know, God actually speaks to you in a way that you can understand. Isn't that true? Isn't that great? Aren't you glad God doesn't speak Portuguese? I mean, he does to the Portuguese people, but like if you don't speak Portuguese... Aren't you glad that God speaks to you in the language that you know and in the language that you understand? He is not, you know, listen, a lot of people think God is hiding from people. He's not hiding from people. He's hiding for people. He's hiding in plain sight so that when you discover him, he'll be the only thing you can see. Amen? Well, praise God. I'll say amen. Glory to God. All right, so we're going to get back into Philippians. Last week, um, I want to just review quickly what we talked about last week. And uh, we dealt with kind of a heavy subject. Y'all remember that, those who were here. We dealt with the subject of suffering and what is suffering. Where does it come from? Why is it here? How do we deal with it? And we made some statements, and I just want to quickly reiterate those to you for you this morning. Number one, we said that suffering is not from God, not, N-O-T, in big capital letters. Suffering is not from God. What is suffering the result of? It is the result of the curse of sin and of death. Because of sin and death having entered into this world, suffering now is an unavoidable con- con- excuse me, consequence. Suffering is an unavoidable consequence of the human experience. Not a single person comes into this world that doesn't experience suffering. Amen. Amen. Not a single person. So we said that the human experience then is universal. Unfortunately, pain is a part of the human experience. It wasn't God's original intention. That's not what he wanted. And all you have to do is go back to the book book of Genesis and look at uh, Adam and Eve and realize everything was perfect. God did not desire human suffering to even exist. But because of sin, because of death, suffering now exists. Now, we said that suffering comes from two sources, one of two sources. It either comes from the devil or it comes from the consequences of our own decisions. So it either comes from Satan or it comes from us. How many of you have ever had to deal with the negative consequences that came with the decisions that you made? All of, only all of us, right? Only all of us. So he said that the key to overcoming suffering is found in our focus and in how we deal with suffering. You remember we talked about the fact that you can focus on the good stuff or you can focus on the suffering, right? Everybody's going to deal with it. Jesus, remember we quoted Jesus where he said in Matthew 15 that it rains upon the just and upon the unjust. Everybody experiences this stuff. But there's some who focus on it and make it the central part of their life, and then there's others who learn how to deal with it appropriately and seem to rise above it every time. Which one do you want to be? Yeah. 
That's a real simple question. Which one do we want to be? We said that, you know, that old phrase that people say all the time, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Well, which do you want to focus on? The fact that they're bigger or the fact that they fall harder? It's still an adversary. It's still an enemy. David still had to deal with Goliath, but the whole armies of Israel were like, he's too big. We can't win. David said, he's so big. I can't miss. Right? It's like it, it, they both, the, the situation was there, but the, you know, different people dealt with it differently. So how we deal with suffering is key to overcoming it. I gave you three keys to successfully deal with suffering. Number, key number one is determine where it's coming from. Did, 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 is this the enemy or is this something that I did to myself? Number two Get the word of God on the issue. And then number three, take your stand. Number one, find out where the, where the suffering's coming from. Is it, is it the enemy coming at me with sickness and disease? Or, is it, or am I being persecuted for my faith? You see, our response to those two are completely different, and we can't afford to get them mixed up. See, Paul tells Timothy, I'm taking just a second extra uh, uh, to review this, okay? Paul tells Timothy that he has to endure hardship as a good soldier. That's what, that's what the, Paul said to his son in the faith. Timothy said, you're going to have to learn how to put your, plant your feet and stand up and be a man and take some stuff. Learn how to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Well, that's very, very different than dealing over on this side with a bad medical report. Right? Big, big difference there. And, and see, we can't afford to get those two confused because if over here, if I'm dealing with persecution, I've got to learn how to stand up and take that and deal with it and learn from it and grow through it. That's not how I deal with sickness. Right? The Bible says Jesus died on the cross. Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes I'm healed. So I take authority over sickness. And I say, no, you can't have access to my life in Jesus' name. That's how I deal with sickness. But I don't deal with persecution that way because I can't take authority over a person. Right? You got you know, some cranky, crabby cousin that doesn't like that you're saved, that gives you grief all the time at, at Thanksgiving because you're a Christian. You can't take authority over Cousin Bill. Right? But you can take authority over the devil. So we can't afford to get those two confused. Now, Paul brings us into Philippians chapter 2. We, we, we wrapped up with the very last three verses of chapter 1 last week. And Philippians 2, Paul kind of turns a corner and launches into some new stuff. And that's what we're going to look at today. I want to get from verse 1 down through verse 11. It's a big chunk, but it's got one of my favorite verses in Philippians in this passage. So let's read this together, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 11, Philippians 2, you can follow us along on the screen or in your Bible. It says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name that at the name of Jesus come on y'all know this every knee would bow and every tongue those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth and verse 11 and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Man, that's, this might be my favorite part of Philippians. Might be. There's some really other good stuff in there too. We got a lot to bite off today and a lot to chew through, so let's do so quickly. Let's jump back up to verse one, and I want to go down through these verse by verse, and I pray that this is of some value to you. By the way, for those watching us online, if this is encouraging you today, if you're enjoying the experience of our service, would you like it? Would you give us a thumbs up? And would you please share it with somebody who needs to hear this message? Amen? All right. Therefore, Paul says in verse 1 again, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, the word consolation here means, in the Greek, it means encouragement or edification. Paul's saying, if Christ, in other words, you could say it this way, if Jesus has been good to you, and if he's done anything for you, if, if there's any comfort in the love of God, if you find any fellowship in the Spirit, and if there's any affection, and if there's any mercy in your life because of what Christ has done for you, do Paul a favor. Fulfill his joy, verse 2. In other words, make me proud, he's saying by being like-minded, by having the same love, by being of one accord, by being of one mind. Paul's asking these guys, you remember that we said that, that Paul loves the Philippian church so much, these are his people. These are, these are like his folks. He talks to them very much like a father talking to his children. Perhaps more than any of the other epistles, he just speaks in such a fatherly tone to these guys. And so I, when I read these verses, I imagine him like sitting at the dinner table with these guys and saying, guys, listen, if Jesus has done anything for you, if there's any edification, if you've been built up or encouraged or strengthened in God at all, if you find the love of God at work inside of you, do me a favor, make me proud. Make me proud by having the same love for one another, by being like-minded, by being in sync with each other. Those who are parents know how beautiful it is and what a blessing it is to your heart when you see your kids loving one another. How many of you got more than one child, right? If you got more than one child, you have seen your children fight and you've seen them walk in love with each other. And to see them love on one another 
it, it fulfills your joy. It does exactly what Paul says here in verse two. Fulfill my joy. Would y'all walk in love? Would, you, would y'all just for heaven's sakes be kind to each other? I feel like that's what Paul's really saying because he's just, he's just real casual with these Philippians. It's like, y'all, would you please just do me a favor? I don't know if he used the word y'all or not, but it's possible. Y'all, would you please just be nice to each other for heaven's sake? Just be kind. If you've learned anything from Christ, love one another. Verse three, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Nothing. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. You know, there's two kinds of ambition. There's ambition for a cause, for a purpose, and then there's selfish ambition. Which one do you think is the good kind of ambition? Selfish ambition says I have to put you down in order to get myself ahead. I got to hold you back in order to propel myself forward. Ambition towards a cause, particularly the cause of the kingdom, says let's all get arm in arm and go forward together. Here's what people with selfish ambition don't understand. You can go faster by yourself, but you can go farther with others. Think about that. Let that just ruminate for a second. You can go faster by yourself, but you can go farther with others. That's why we build teams. That's why we try to think in terms of the whole group of us because we want to go farther together. You might be able to get to the finish line faster by yourself, but that's selfish ambition. That's, trying, that's letting go of the person God has called you to walk with. That's leaving them in the dust so that you can get ahead. And Paul says, don't do that. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each one esteem others as better than himself. Now, I want to focus on this word esteem for a moment, and I want to make a couple statements that are probably hard to hear or maybe a little bit difficult for a second. So just stick with me through this, and we'll get there together, okay? Let's focus on this word esteem for a moment. There is much in our culture that is made of the word esteem, in particular, self-esteem. But as we drill down into this word, we're going to find out that the notion of self-esteem is very flawed. The notion of self-esteem is very flawed. It just got real uncomfortable. So just hang with me for a second. The Greek word for esteem that we see in this word, in this verse, let each esteem others as better than himself. This Greek word is the word which describes the admiration of someone, excuse me, the admiration of someone, no, hold on, I, I lost my place. The Greek word for esteem is the word which describes the admiration that someone shows to someone else based on that person's elevated importance. Let me read it to you one more time, since I messed it up a couple times. The Greek word for esteem in this verse is the word which describes the admiration that someone shows to someone else based on that person's elevated importance. In other words, if I esteem you, 
I show admiration to you, and I value you as being more important than myself. Esteem is expressed in the praise that we give. Esteem is expressed in the praise that we give. It's when I see someone that I deem to be more important than myself. They're elevated. They're better than I am. They're more valuable than I am, so I esteem them. I give them admiration because I think they're so important. In fact, the root of this Greek word actually means authority or leadership. And you say, well, that sounds good. That's not bad. Doesn't sound bad at all. And I agree with you. Esteem is not bad at all. It gets ugly, though, when we put the word self in front of it. That's because esteem is not meant for us. Esteem is meant for others. Paul's whole point of this verse stands in stark contradiction to what a lot of us have heard our whole lives, which is, you need to have better self-esteem. What's being said in that is you need to praise yourself a little more. You need to hold yourself in a little bit higher position of admiration because you're important. Stick with me. It's going to get better. Esteem is not meant for us. It's meant for others. Listen to the words of the rabbi Daniel Lappin. Some of you may know who he is. Daniel Lappin says, regarding the dangers of self-esteem, he writes in his book, Thou Shalt Prosper. If you've never read it, it's phenomenal. It's like 500 pages long. It'll take you three years to read it, but it's such a good book. Listen to the words of Rabbi Lappin. He says, quite a lot has been written about the self-esteem movement that from its beginnings in 1969 had a huge and mostly negative effect on emotional, educational, and cultural trends. Unfortunately, he goes on to say, unfortunately, state-run K-12 public education has been almost entirely subverted by the self-esteem movement. Now, my wife's a teacher. There's other people in this room that are teachers. People watching us online that are teachers. We love teachers. Not making fun of education. There's 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 a distinct point for us to get in this, okay? Education has been almost entirely subverted by the self-esteem movement. Studies have shown that convicted murderers as a group enjoy very high self-esteem. Not surprisingly, in their eyes, other people's lives don't have as much value as theirs do. Remember, the, the, the word for esteem, what does esteem mean? It's the accolades, it's the admiration that I show for somebody that I think is better than me. So if I have self-esteem, that means I think I'm better than you and I'm gonna praise myself for it. American students, this is a continuation of Rabbi Lappin's quote, American students regularly score poorly on math tests versus students from other countries, but have a much higher opinion of their math skills than than their more skilled counterparts in other countries. 
He references, and I didn't put it all in there because it's lengthy, but he references a study that was done in 1989 where they polled high school juniors and seniors and asked them how they thought they did at math. How does America stack up against the rest of the world in math? And they said, for sure we got to be top one or two. We're Americans. We're awesome. Turns out South Koreans were the best in the world. And America was much closer to the bottom. But then when they polled the same South Korean kids, they found out that the South Koreans didn't think they were anything special. They said, well, we try hard, but we don't know how we stack up against the rest of the world. The rabbi makes this point. One might say that the American public education has failed to teach mathematics, but has succeeded in making its students feel good about that fact. This is the glaring failure of self-esteem. Now, why do I get into all this? What's the answer? Why am I talking about this? Am I, are we supposed to feel horrible and look down on ourselves? Are we supposed to just constantly beat ourselves up and tell ourselves we're not good enough? Of course not. I say all this to, to cause us to understand and hopefully to stir something up on the inside of you that the goal is not self-esteem. The goal is self-respect. The goal is not self-esteem. The goal is self respect, and there's a big difference. You see, we are made in the image of God, and we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. These two facts alone are enough for us to understand that our worth and our value as human beings is extremely high. Amen. Let me say that again for those in the balcony. We've been made in the image of God and have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Those two facts alone mean that our lives are of extremely high value because number one, God made us in his image and God doesn't make junk. And number two, Jesus shed the most precious blood in the history of the universe. He shed the most valuable blood to buy the most not valuable blood, which is ours. So we have value, tremendous value. So the answer is not to devalue ourselves. The answer is for us to understand where our value comes from. The difference is between self-respect and self-esteem. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. If you're not taking notes, I want you to write this down. When I have self-respect... My worth is built upon who God says that I am based on his word. When I have self-esteem, my worth is built upon who I say that I am based on how I feel. Wow. Uh, Don't worry, I'm going to say it again. I'll say it like three more times. This is the best part about when my family comes to town. They sit in the front row and tell me what to do. It's great. My sister and my mother would say it again, say it again, say it again. We didn't get it all, say it again. All right, let me say it again. Listen, listen to, the, to the contrast here. I'm telling you, if you can get this in your heart, this will help you raise your kids better. This will help you love your wife better, your, your husband better. This will help you better on the job. This will make life so much better for you if we get this distinction. When I have self-respect... My worth is built upon who God says that I am based on his word. When I have self-esteem, 
My worth is built upon who I say that I am based on how I feel. Heaven forbid how I feel should change. Heaven forbid that I have a bad day because then all of a sudden what I say changes and my self-esteem begins to shift and, and all the confidence that I'd built in myself goes right out the window. But see, if I'll switch to an understanding of respecting who God has made me to be based on what I see in his word, I will not be moved by circumstances. I'll not be shifted by, by off situations. I'll go through a challenging moment, and I won't for a moment change in my understanding of who God says that I am. We sang a song at the beginning of this service which says, I am who you say that I am. Now, this is just how cool the Holy Spirit is. We didn't plan that. Leslie heard from God on her own. That's the way the church works. Amen? That's called healthy. Amen. I'm just being honest. That's called healthy. Listen, it's not about how you and I feel. It's not even about, you know, I understand we talk about our self-talk all the time. And our self-talk needs to be good, but it needs to be in line with the word of God. My self-talk needs to be, I am who God says that I am, not I'm trying to pump myself up to feel good about myself and have great self-esteem. Because the moment my self-esteem that I've pumped myself up with is not recognized is the moment I'll just deflate like a balloon. Paul says we have to live the opposite of self-esteem. In fact, he says at the end of verse 3, we need to esteem others as better than ourselves. Wow. Again, this is not to try to compromise what the Bible says about us. Here's the reality, guys. You'll, if you'll get a, a picture of who the Bible says that you are, that is so much better than the very best self-esteem you could ever fill yourself with. I mean, if you're just building yourself up based on your own accomplishments and calling it self-esteem, that's nowhere near as good as you filling yourself up with the word of God. It's not about my accomplishments. It's about Jesus' accomplishments. It's about what he did on the cross that gives my life value. And if I'll anchor myself in that, I will not be moved. Amen? All right, I gotta keep moving. I would love to keep camping on that. The goal is self-respect, not self-esteem. Now, look at what he goes on to say in verse four. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So now we're moving just beyond our own identity and we're looking at the interests of others. So we go from dealing with who we are now moving into a category of what we do. I wrote in my notes, don't just care about you and yours. Don't just care about you and yours. We have in the church far too long taken that stance of us for no more. Y'all have heard that before. Long as I'm taken care of, that's all that matters. That's not all that matters. We're not, we're not from the outside in people. We're from the inside out. We live from the love of God and we seek to bless the world around us. Amen. Don't just care about you and yours. Live to serve. This is Paul's admonition to us that we live to serve. Serving 
in God's kingdom is the only real way to advance. And I understand the minute that we start talking about this, it challenges our own selfishness. We say, well, what about me? Am I going to be taken care of if I serve? Absolutely. I thought about the quote Zig Ziglar is famous for saying, Zig is no longer alive, he's in heaven now, but Zig's famous for saying this, you can get everything in life that you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. (laughs) That's so good. That's what a heart of a servant. You can get everything you want in life if you'll just help enough of others get what they want. If you'll learn, this is another one if you're taking notes, write this down. If you'll learn how to serve others, you'll find that your own needs don't last very long. Amen. You'll find that your needs don't last very long. And, and the thing is, you know, you and I may start even from a place of self-preservation, but soon we'll find that the blessing is not in what we get from serving, but is the act of the service itself. Hence, Jesus says the words, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. See, sometimes we start out serving and giving and, and living from the inside out. We start doing that just to, you know, as, as an act of self-preservation. We just say, well, I, I'm supposed to do this, so I'm going to do it, and I know that I'm going to get something for it, so I'm going to do it so that I get the thing I'm supposed to get for it. Does that make sense? I was teaching my kids about offering and tithes not too long ago, and I was talking to one of my daughters who shall remain unnamed just for her own benefit. And she, I was talking to him about giving, and I said, well, this is what the Bible says. We give 10%, and then above that, we give our offering. And, and she goes, so um, what am I going to get back? Because I was talking to him about how God will bless us if we will give. And she's like, so what, what's in it for me, you know? And that's the natural human response. And sometimes we start living a life of giving and we start living a life of serving from that perspective. I'm going to do this because I know something is in it for me. And God is so good and so merciful and so gracious, he will let you do that for the rest of your life. But his goal is that in the serving, as you learn to serve, your heart shifts and you actually don't get addicted to the return. You get addicted to the sowing. You get addicted to the serving. You get addicted to the joy that comes from living a life for someone else. Hence, Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Guys, this is the Christian lifestyle. It should be self-explanatory. But it is the pattern established for us by our Lord. And this is what Paul is getting ready to tell us. He's saying the reason you can live from your heart in service to to those around you, the reason that you can do that is because that's the example that Jesus set for you. So he goes on to say in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Now the word mind here is the word in Greek that means thinking. It's not talking about your brain. It's not talking about the the mechanics of your mind. It's talking about how you think. So in other words, he's saying, let this pattern of thought, let this way of thinking be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, this is probably the weirdest scripture in this passage, but when we dive in, we'll understand what it means. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That is, you know, from the outset, is kind of a confusing verse. I remember reading this in, when I was younger in middle school and high school and thinking, what is he talking about, robbery? Like, you know, like a masked bandit breaking into somebody's house in the middle of the night. I'm like, what the heck is he talking about, robbery? Let me read this to you from a few different translations. The voice translation of, version of verse 6 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not choose to cling to equality with God. Though he was in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, he did not choose to cling to equality with God. The Amplified says, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped or asserted as if he did not already possess it or was afraid of losing it. Is the light bulb starting to go off? The Living Bible says, who, though he was God, did not demand and cling to his rights as God. What do we have here? Jesus is so secure in who he was that he was willing to lay aside who he was in order to take a lower position for the benefit of those he was serving in the process. This is ministry. This is Christian service. This is the why behind everything. Let me give you the picture. Jesus is in heaven for eons and eons of eternity in total perfect fellowship with God. He is the word of God. And when it comes time to redeem mankind, rather than refuse and, and, and quote his right to remain God, he said, I'll let go of my rights and come to this earth and bear the sins of them as one of them so that I could redeem them. Isn't that amazing? This is the heartbeat of the sacrifice of our king. And it is the why behind everything that we do. If we are not living for a generation beyond ourselves, we have not discovered the purpose of God for our lives. If we are not living with the attitude of service to the world around us, if we are not living for the benefit of those who still have not said yes to Jesus, we've missed it. Because the example that Jesus set for us is one that says, I'm not going to hold on to my status as God. I'm going to let go of my status as a deity and come in the likeness of human flesh. John chapter 1 says that the word became flesh and dwelled among us and we beheld his glory. What was the glory? It was the glory of his sacrifice. It was the glory of his willingness to trade places. 
You see, a lot of people get into ministry pursuing a pulpit, pursuing, a, pursuing an opportunity to be known. A lot of people get into, get into ministry because they want to make a difference, and they start to say, we're going to make a difference, we're going to win the world for Jesus, and then it gets uncomfortable, and they say it's not worth it, and uh, this is not what I thought that it was going to be, and this is too much sacrifice, so I don't want to have any part in this anymore. I'm going to go back to whatever I was doing before. Thank God Jesus didn't do that. Thank God Jesus didn't get frustrated when the going got tough. To the degree that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, shedding drops, sweating, excuse me, drops of blood, going, Lord, if there's any other way for us to do this, now's the time, God. If there's any other way for us to redeem humanity, this is the moment, Lord, tell me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. We got too many Christians married to their own will. Mm, can I just say that one more time? They got too many Christians married to their own will. Not going to let go of my own comfort. I'm not going to let go of what I think it should be and what it should look like. Many people refuse to lower themselves to serve because they are afraid of how they'll be seen or perceived. They are worried that they may lose some type of status or they are interested in preserving their rights. In other words, let somebody else do that. I'm too important. Let somebody else go to the nations. I'm too important. Or how about this one? Let somebody else go work at the soup kitchen because I've paid my dues. I've served. I was there. I did that for two years. I'm moving on to bigger and better things. There is no bigger and better thing in the kingdom than to serve. Jesus said, you want to be the greatest leader? Be the one who gets low and serves. Hours before he's going to his crucifixion, he gets on his knees and washes the feet of the man who is about to betray him. It doesn't get more confident than that. It doesn't get more boss status than getting low and washing the feet of the man who sold you out so that you could be killed. It doesn't get tougher than that. I've paid my dues. I don't want to I don't want to be involved. If we if we don't get this idea, we'll miss a lot of what God has for us in his plan for his church. Amen. There's also a second lesson in this verse. I got to keep going. Y'all doing okay? Y'all still love me? We got through the uncomfortable stuff, okay? Now we're, now we're going to get ready to shout, okay? Here we go. There's also a second lesson in this verse about him laying aside his deity, about him not holding on and clinging to his rights to be God. The second lesson is this that Jesus did everything that he did on this planet as a man. He laid aside his deity. This is part of the great mystery of the gospel. Theologians call it the incarnation. You may have heard that word used before. It means that Jesus left his seat of royalty and came to this earth as 100% man and 100% God at the same time. He made the eternal decision to become a man. Do you know that Jesus, after he rose again, didn't go back to being a nebulous word of God? He's always a man. He's got a body for all of eternity. He made that decision for you. Think about that now. Imagine this. 
Jesus is the word of God. For all of eternity, Jesus is there. When God says, let there be light, Jesus is the word itself going and creating the light. That was who Jesus was before he came to this earth. The Bible says he, the word became flesh and the word got into a human body and for all of eternity decided to be a man. So now when we go to heaven and we see Jesus, we're not gonna see some airy fairy cloud known as Jesus. We're gonna see the man, Jesus, with nail prints in his hand. Do you know that Jesus has nail prints in his hands for all of eternity? He made the decision to die on a cross and he knew he was gonna take that decision with him forever. It's amazing. Jesus made the eternal decision to become a man I love the way this reads in the Message Bible. You with me? The Message Bible reads, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. As a matter of fact, when the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, becoming human. And having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death, the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. So then we get to verse 9. And Paul says, because of all that, God has highly exalted him. Come on. Because of all that Jesus did, because of the fact that he traded his eternal glorified de deity status and became a human being, because he died the worst death possible, because he put himself in our place, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name. Because of what he did, because he didn't hold on to his deity, because he saw that you were worth it for him to get a body that would have holes in it for all of eternity. You can, you can go and see Jesus and there's still a wound in his side to this day. It'll be there forever. The Bible says his blood is for all of eternity crying out in the mercy seat in heaven, mercy, 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 mercy. Every time God looks at the mercy seat in heaven, he sees the blood of Jesus still as fresh as the moment that it was, that it was slain. And there he is crying out mercy for all of eternity. You'll never be able to undo the mercy of God because as long as Jesus is alive, there will be mercy. As long as Jesus is still alive, there'll be grace. This is the mystery. This is the beauty of the gospel. Because of everything that he did, now God has highly exalted him. This word, highly exalted in the Greek, I'm almost finished, just stick with me for a moment. This word, highly exalted here, means beyond, beyond. That's just what it means. Highly exalted just means beyond. It's, it's, the, it's the Greek word hooper. We actually get the English word hyper from it. It's like when you hyperextend your knee and your leg goes in a direction beyond its normal scope of use. It's like when your kids have had 37 donut holes and they're, and they're just going beyond their normal routine of stillness and quietness. 
and they get real hyper. That sixth bowl of Fruit Loops just starts kicking in, and all of a sudden, it's like a pinball machine, you know? That's that word. It means beyond. Beyond what? Beyond everything. When Jesus rose from the dead, he got immediately elevated to being beyond everything. There's nothing that touches him. There's nothing that comes even close. It's like, it's like the best thing you ever saw in your life is here, and Jesus is like, I don't have a ladder high enough to get me to show the gap between where he is and where everything else in the universe is. There's no government. There's no political system. There's no disease. There's no institution. There's nothing that can compare to the greatness of the name of Jesus. And the reason he's got that is because he started low. He set the bar low by setting it high. Or I should say it the other way around. He set the bar really high by setting the bar really low. He got low. He, he left his perfect position. And now when he, when he raises from the dead, Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority in all of heaven and earth is given to me. See, he raised, he raised up from the dead and he, and he came out of that grave with total victory and total triumph. There is no sin that ever has existed nor ever will exist that can separate you from the perfection of who he is. There is nothing that you've ever committed in your life. There's no thought that you ever even had that can separate you from his perfect love. He cannot be undone. His victory cannot be unraveled. It's finished, it's sealed, it's done. And he's been given the name that's above every other name. Look at, look at this in Psalm 72. This is an amazing verse. Psalm 72, beginning in verse 17, watch this. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. All men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Look at verse 18. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who does wondrous things. Look at verse 19. And blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. You want to see what Jesus looks like? Can I show you a snapshot of Jesus for just a second? Go, go to Revelation 19. Look at this. Oh, this is going to mess you up in the best way possible. John says, now I saw heaven opened. This, this is Jesus, okay? Get, just hold on before we read this. Let me just say this. This is Jesus. He came to the earth as a baby he came to the earth in absolute humility. He died the most vicious, gruesome death, tried and killed as a criminal, even though he had committed no crime. Perfectly innocent, the Bible says, like a lamb, he went to the slaughter. And God now has highly exalted him, rose him up from the dead, and this is what he looks like now. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, perfect righteousness, he judges and he makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. 
He had a name written that nobody knew except himself. I love this idea that the father and the son have a little deal that nobody knows about. He was clothed with a robe dipped in his own blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The word of God will never fail you because the word of God is Jesus with skin on. Do you understand? Jesus is this with skin on. He, if he can't fail you, this can't fail you. All the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you and that's me. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. See, back then, he was the humble Jesus. He was the, he was the birds have no nests, or birds have nests and foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was, he, was, he was the humble Jesus, but when he comes back again, he ain't coming back as humble, quiet Jesus. He's gonna kick the clouds out of the way, and there's gonna be a sound from heaven like a trumpet, and he's gonna ride in looking like this. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with an odd rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Sounds scary. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name that is written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Oh, there's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. Every knee is going to bow to the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You, me, everybody. Every sickness, every disease is going to bow. Every king and every kingdom is going to bow. Every world system, every global elite, everything you can think of, everything in this universe. The Bible says even the trees of the field will clap their hands. The, the scripture says even the mountains themselves will bow low when he comes. There's nobody like Jesus. And all of us and all of creation and all of everything is going to bow its knee and is going to raise its voice in adoration. All of us are going to shout, Jesus is Lord. All of us are going to declare, he is king. He is Lord. I, you know, when... I don't know how many months ago it was now. Time is kind of funny with the way that everything's been going, but some months ago, Kanye West came out with an album called Jesus is King. And a lot of people got real irritated with him. And I, for the life of me, couldn't figure out why. Because if a sinner can have a radical encounter with Jesus and come away from that radical encounter making an album that declares Jesus is king, what's wrong with that? Because at some point in Kanye's life, he was going to say Jesus is king. The question is now or later. 
It's like the candy that you used to eat when you were a kid, that sticky thing that got caught in your molars a now and later. It's either going to be now or it's going to be later. You're going to say Jesus is Lord. You can do so willingly now or you can do so forcibly later. He's king, guys. He's Lord. He's above all, before all, in all. I love what the book of Ephesians says, that he is the one that fills everything with himself. You go read the last verse in Ephesians chapter one, it says he fills all in all. I like it in the Message Bible. It says he fills everything with himself. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord. He's Jesus. I mean, what can you say? What can you say about him that hasn't been said? You know, you get into a moment like this and your worship gets so, you get so overwhelmed with how big he is and how amazing he is that you start running out of words fast. And, and the best thing you can do is just go, Jesus, we love you. There's nothing else to say except how great thou art. How much do I love you? How incredible are you? I, I don't even seem to have the words to describe it because when I look at you, I see that robe dipped in blood. I see the eyes like fire. I see the word of God like a sword protruding out of his mouth, seated on a white horse of absolute victory. You tell me a devil in hell that's going to try to step to that. You tell me some sickness that thinks it's badder than that that we just read. You think think your marriage is on the rocks? You tell me a divorce that can stand up to the weight of who he is. When you get that Jesus, that one that we read about, when you get him in your situation, nothing is impossible. Nothing. When he fights your battles, you don't lose. You think he ever lost? He won even when he lost. He won by dying. Hello? I mean... It's impossible for him to lose. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he he was victorious then, he's victorious now. And you and I, we come to a moment of choice in our lives. You're going to call Jesus Lord one day. You're going to. Will you call him Lord today? Will you make a decision today to make him the Lord of your life? I understand you may be in this room or maybe you're watching me online and maybe, maybe you're like, yeah, I've made him Lord of my life. Okay, just do it again. Just tell him today that he's Lord of your life. You know, sometimes our commitments to him, they grow cold. I read a quote I read a quote about motivation from Zig Ziglar. You know, I quoted Zig a little earlier. He's got a great quote about motivation where he says that motivation usually doesn't last very long. That's, he says that it's like showers. That's why we recommend that you have one every day. Motivation, you need to motivate yourself every day. Well, the same is true for our commitment to Jesus. Our, our commitment to the kingdom, our commitment to his, to living the life that he's called us to live, it's an everyday thing. So you may have made Jesus the Lord of your life 10 years ago when you came down to the front of a church and gave your life to Christ. Why not do it again today? 
I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just trying to show you what reality looks like. You're going to call him Lord at some point. Why not now? Why not today? Why not we just renew our, why, why not just everybody in this room and everybody watching me online? Why don't we just all make a commitment to Jesus today? Why don't we just make a fresh start and say, you know what, Lord? You're Lord. You were Lord of my life yesterday and the day before and last week and last month. But you know what? Man, I just can't help it. You're Lord of me. You're Lord of my life again today. And then tomorrow when I'm here again, Lord, mm, you're going to be Lord again tomorrow. And you can be Lord the next day. And no matter what I do and no matter where I stray and no matter how I run and no matter what mistakes I make, you're still going to be Lord. The Bible says the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and his mercies are new every morning. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter where you've come from. We have a moment today when we can say, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life. You're the name that's above every other name. Can we stand up to our feet? We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.